praise you to be here today. I'll pray in everything we do and say, and may this gathering of your people bring you joy. You created us for your glory, yet we rebel against you. You gave us life, yet we fail to honor you with it. You gave us your word, yet we fail to read it. You gave us this church, yet we fail to make it a priority. You gave us your son, yet we constantly place ourselves as Lord of our lives. Lord, forgive us. But thanks be to God that in your grace, you have not given us over to what we deserve, death and eternal separation. Instead, you sent your son as a propitiation for our sins so we may live. Not to live a better life now, but to live for your glory alone that often comes through pain and suffering. We have nothing and are nothing without you. Lord, please help us to live in a manner worthy of your calling. Please help our lives to reflect you and bring you glory. Con continue to sanctify us. Lord, we praise you for the healing work you have done in Debbie Jacobson. I ask that you continue to heal her. Lord, please continue to give Dave the strength to care for Debbie. I also ask that we, as a body, use this opportunity to come beside them and show your love. I pray for the members of the Salem Reformed Baptist Church. Holy Spirit, please soften their hearts to your word and draw them close to you. I pray that you are proclaimed joyfully today and throughout the week. Lord, I also pray for the expectant parents and those with infants here at Mission. Lord, I pray for healthy deliveries along with wisdom and discernment as they navigate parenthood. I pray for the families that you are the center of the home, that your gospel is proclaimed always in both word and action. I pray that each child is drawn to you in your perfect timing. Lord, I also pray for those who are single. May you fill any loneliness that may occur and draw them close to you. Lord, help each of us to be able to praise you and serve you in every situation we find ourselves in. Lastly, I pray for our brother Kelton. Lord, I thank you for him and his commitment to this body. I thank you for the preparation he has done this week and that we know you will use it for your glory. Holy Spirit, we ask that you speak to our hearts that we are forever changed. Amen. Good morning, church. As Steve so wonderfully introduced me, I am Kelton. I'm the director of youth ministry here at the church. And every once in a while, I get the blessing of serving the church in this way with the preaching of the word of God. Thank you for being here. It was a cold and rainy day in March of 2020 when the screen of my college laptop turned a harsh, error-indicating blue. Finals were approaching, and the laptop I had hoped to use for typing the final papers for that semester displayed errors of a sort I had never seen. I've never been much of a computer whiz, but I knew that with a bit of Googling, I might, I just might, be able to fix the problem myself. After my own efforts produced little progress, I considered my options. That's when I got my hopes up. I had a friend who was a sort of computer whiz. He had helped me shop for laptops, 
when I had been looking. He had given me the stamp of approval when I had finally found one that I eventually purchased that was now giving me all these issues. And he had offered to help if I ever had any issues. And there I was with computer problems. And so his offer came to mind. In desperation, I sent him a text. So we talked on the phone. And at first, he was confident that he could help me. And as I read the error codes and statements on the solid blue screen, I hopefully waited for a response. After a brief silence, he did respond. You should probably send it in to a technician, he said. I would type most of my papers on an iPhone that year. My friend's claims, though not ill-intended, were maybe a bit braggadocious. Maybe you found yourself in a similar position to me or in the place of my friend. You talk about how often you work out. Someone overhears you and asks you to help them move. When it comes time to actually move the heavy stuff, you find yourself helpless. As an excuse, you say that you had a really hard workout the day before. Sure you did. You boast in how much information you know, and your friends then invite you to trivia. And you find yourself only knowing that you have let your team down as you stare blankly at question after question. Maybe you tell your boss you're proficient at Excel. <laughs> and though you thought you were proficient at Excel, you quickly discover that you are out of your league. When you send your work in, you can only imagine your boss's confusion and possibly disgust as he looks at your sloppy work. Words are cheap in a game of boasting. We're quick to learn from others and ourselves that being exposed is not what we claimed to be, is quite humbling. Humility or humiliation is a powerful tool. It exposes the truth and asks us to actually take an inventory of what and who we really are. Paul, in his first letter to Corinth, addresses a church full of braggadocious claims of allegiance and ability and gifting and status. Yet Paul sees through it and speaks to the church to remind them who they really are. This morning, we will be looking to Paul's first letter to the church of Corinth, chapter 1, verses 26 through 31. There are a few points of context that we need to remind ourselves of before we jump into our text this morning. First, the opening chapter of 1 Corinthians offers us a foreshadowing of what Paul is going to be covering or talking about through the rest of the letter. As we end chapter 1 this morning, we're given a taste, though a small taste, of what's going to come at the end of 1 Corinthians, chapter 15 to be specific. In chapter 15, Paul deals with the end of time. Chapter 1, verses 26 through 31, will ask us to consider the coming day of judgment, where the hearts and works of humanity will be revealed and judged by the Lord. Second, we have already been notified by Paul about some of Corinth's many issues. Members of the church were vying for status and authority. This power struggle pointed to an arrogance in the body and a missing virtue that the gospel is to produce, unity. 
The Corinthians sought status, power, and wisdom so that they might be esteemed. But by who? Paul will challenge the arrogance of the church while also encouraging them in correction. And third, we must consider the pericope, our section of text, prior to this one. Paul has just laid out the power of the cross and its message. The cross and its message are considered foolishness and absurdity by those who do not believe. What was understood as weakness by the world had the power to save according to the Lord. In fact, the message of the cross was the wisdom and power of God. Paul has informed us that the ways of the Lord are different than the ways of man. Paul continues this flow of thought into our text this morning. And in our text this morning, Paul will ponder God's display of wisdom and power by now looking to the body of Christ. He will ask them to consider themselves, then to consider the people the Corinthians supposedly wanted to be like, and finally, to look to Christ. If you've not already, open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 31. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 31. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. Even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God and because of him, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. From these last few verses of 1 Corinthians 1, we find Paul's argument to be this. Boast in Christ, our salvation. Boast in Christ, our salvation. As we step into this text, will you pray with me? Lord, you have given us your word that we may know you. Your word is power, active in convicting, correcting, encouraging, and comforting. As we come to your word, we admit that we are arrogant. We are quick to boast in our works and deeds, turning away from you. As we look to your word, soften our hearts, convict us of our sin, and guide us in our obedience to you. Make us reliant on your mercy and grace, justice and power. Remind us of who we were without you and who we now are in Christ. It is in his name we pray, amen. Let's turn our attention to the first verse of this morning. Verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. 
Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Looking to verse 26, we see Paul ask the church to consider its calling. In asking this, Paul is telling the brothers and sisters of Corinth to think back to when they were called by God, but also to remember what they were called into and whose service at that. Paul then helps them remember, for based on the arrogance displayed by the church, they seem to have forgotten. Essentially, Paul is telling them to look around the room and into their pasts. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards, writes Paul. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Our first point then is this, the ragtag body of Christ. The ragtag body of Christ. Paul's commentary on the makeup of the church population is direct, but not spiteful or mean. In calling the believers of Corinth brothers, Paul is calling upon their common faith, unity in Christ, and his love for them. Based on our understanding of Corinth, this lowly makeup would also not have been shocking We again think to who would have made up the people of Corinth, retired soldiers and former slaves. While there would have been some amongst the body, potentially, who would have been considered wise, powerful, or noble according to worldly standards, the vast majority were quite the opposite. Though they might have been low, average at best, we find that some in the church seem to be striving to elevate their statuses through at least association, if not a mess of other methods. Paul's comments would have most certainly stung the pride of a church battling with an infestation of arrogance. Paul is telling the church that when God called them, they were fools, weaklings, and lowlifes. Now, we must acknowledge that the ideas of folly and weakness found here were present in our last chunk of text. And Paul's point was that what the world considers as weak, the Lord has used to display strength. In a brilliant rhetorical method, Paul is already preparing us to associate with Christ in our weakness. Yet there would have been many in the church who were startled by Paul's supposed name-calling. They quite possibly would have been too offended to see the argument taking shape. Why would Paul bring to attention our foolishness, our weakness, our lowliness, some might have asked. Paul has only spoken the truth. A common phrase that we're quick to throw around is that the truth hurts. This is the case if we are in denial of the truth. If someone lovingly points out your sin and your response is offense, you ought to consider the posture of your heart. Christianity demands a true view of self and others. Before we can be saved, we first must acknowledge that we need to be saved. Sick people go to the doctor we deny our illness, we deny our need for diagnosis. 
We must consider the ways that the world attempts to mask its foolishness, weakness, and lowliness. It looks to achievement. We collect accolades, awards, promotions, and goals to show the strength of our determination. We determine our worth by the size of our paycheck, the things we have done, and the trophies we've been awarded. The world looks to ability. We convince ourselves that we are irreplaceable in all that we do. We boast in what we can do, and then we look down on others who cannot match our skills, especially the ones that we determine as important skills or abilities. It hides in knowledge. We set resolutions to read more books. We seek degrees and enjoy getting bogged down in the trivial. We always have an answer, and we're always right, or at least sound right. It hides in spirituality. We do all the things that make a good Christian. We go to church and make sure to raise our hands extra high and pray extra loud. We find special knowledge and wisdom that we are the source of. It looks to status. We hide from the truth and what others say about us. We look down on those less connected and sociable than us. We hide. We ignore and we run from the truth of who we are. Instead of hiding, ignoring, running from who we are apart from the Lord, we must face it and face ourselves. In some way, Paul commands it, consider your calling. Though easy to miss, there's a powerful application in store for us from this verse. Check your pride, arrogance, and boasting at the door. when we face hard conversations with a brother or sister in Christ, leave your pride behind. When we go before the Lord in prayer, set aside your entitlement. As you open the word of God, cast away your ego. Remember your lowliness, for it prepares your heart. We must also acknowledge that Paul is telling the church to remember who they are collectively. What is, gathering, what is the gathering of the saints supposed to be? Remember your calling. Remember what you were called to. What is the gathering of saints supposed to be? What happens when we make church about something other than Christ? Is it a church anymore? When church is merely a social club, a business opportunity, a moral check in the box for being a good person, we have neglected our calling. We gather because we are Christians, church, not to boost our status with and in the world. Paul demands that the church be humbled in remembering who they are, the ragtag body of Christ. Without this humility, the church will be quick to forget to boast only in Christ, their salvation. Brothers and sisters, we cannot boast in ourselves. Paul then advances his argument and justifies his reason for the loving jab at the collective ego of Corinth's believers. He shows his advancement of thought with the phrase, but God chose and with this turn, we discover God has intended for his people to be 
as Paul described. Fools, weaklings, and nobodies by worldly standards. For it is through using them that God's glory is most clearly displayed. Let's revisit verses 27 through 29. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And so we find in these verses our second point. God humiliates boastful humanity. God humiliates boastful humanity. Paul carries over the statements from the last verse into the next few. We find that the Lord has special use for those deemed foolish, weak, and low by the world. To fully grasp this section, we should address the phrasing of verse 28 because it's unique and interesting. But Paul's parallel logic helps us to understand. Foolishness matches wisdom, weakness matches strength, and so lowliness would match nobility. If this logic stands in the phrase, things that are not refers to the low and unestablished and the things that are refers to those who are established. 1 Corinthians 2, 6 will further support this reasoning, speaking of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. The things that are established are doomed to pass away. We then might say that God uses the low and despised to bring to an end the dynasties and authorities of this world. Again, this third category matches the third found in verse 26, those not of noble birth. Here, low status is seen as the opposite of nobility. This parallel set of three is not the only connection to the last verse. The calling of God's people is an idea that certainly runs adjacent to the choosing of people by God. God's people were called by him. God's people were chosen by him. And it is these people who the world deems as foolish, weak, and lowly that the Lord chooses to shame who the world calls wise, strong, and noble. How might this work? Consider with me a schoolyard hypothetical. We are setting teams for an old-fashioned game of kickball. One team is full of decent athletes. The other team is composed of people far less athletically gifted. Both teams have talented coaches. But the team of skilled athletes is so convinced of their gifting, they refuse to be coached, to seek any counsel from the person who's over them. In fact, the athletes refuse to work together. They're all convinced they should be the star of their team. And so a mess is made. 
On the other team, the untalented players understanding that they don't stand a chance without help are quick to follow what the coach teaches them. They train and stretch and practice. And on the day of the game, the underdogs are triumphant. They work as a team, uninterested in proving their own worth or glory. Our remarks about this team after the game would not be about how talented the players are, but how good their coach was. The glory is truly due to the coach. In the other team's dugout, can you imagine the crushing feeling of the players who have been beaten? Their arrogance, the thing they thought would make them great, has been their downfall. It's exposed them as fraudulent. Earthly talent, power, and status lead to arrogance and downfall. Proverbs tells us, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. It is better to be of a lowly spirit with the poor than to divide the spoil with the proud. We often think of this proverb in earthly contexts, but this proverb actually reflects the eternal way of things. Bringing pride for our works to the gates of heaven and expecting them to open is true foolishness. Earthly wisdom, power, and status produce a false sense of worthiness. The arrogant are like children bored at the Sistine Chapel, scribbling away in a coloring book, boasting to a parent that they have colored within the lines. Arrogance blinds us to the truth. It inflates our works and hides reality. Humility, on the other hand, opens our eyes. Consider with me the power of humility. In humiliating the wise, strong, and noble, the heart might grasp the desperate situation at hand. When we're brought low, we see our desperation, our brokenness, our neediness. Paul would have been well acquainted with this idea and would be able to speak personally of it. Once being an arrogant Pharisee, Paul would have claimed Christ to be a fraud and fool prior to meeting the Lord, of course. Paul, once a proud Pharisee and a zealous adherent of the law, was now considered an enemy of the sect he once was tied to. And consider his commission to preach the gospel to Gentiles something that would have been considered outrageous by who he formerly was. Paul had been humbled, and in his humiliation, he was called. If we're familiar with the narrative of Scripture, we're not surprised by the testimony, the calling of Paul or of what Paul writes in verses 27 through 29. Instead, we're grateful for such clarity and conciseness. This has been how the Lord has always operated in the call of the lowly, in using the lowly to shame the proud. Consider God's covenant and promise with Abraham, a childless old man. If you're trying to found a nation... 
You're not going to start with Abraham. He doesn't have an heir. Yet God chose Abraham for only the Lord could give, be given the glory for what would happen. Consider the Lord's words to Israel. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. God's covenant with the people of Israel was not based on their might or power or numerous members out of his faithfulness. Consider Jacob, the younger and weaker brother, a schemer and deceiver. God chooses him to carry on the line of Abraham. Think of Gideon, the youngest man of the weakest family in the tribe of Manasseh, according to Gideon. Consider the Lord's words to him as his army was reduced. The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. Church, most importantly, consider the cross, which most perfectly displays the methodology of God. Life and salvation from death on a cross, resurrection from the dead, deity and humanity in one person, foolishness, a savior and king who allowed himself to suffer? Who willingly went? Who gave no effort to vindicate himself? Beaten and nailed to a tree? Weakness. A carpenter's son hung up for claiming to be God, only to be mocked by the people he came to save? Dying the death of a criminal? Lowly, and despised. Church, it's now the cross and the king crucified upon it who stands as the end to all boasts. Perfect in his wisdom, his power, and his glory, Christ has humiliated the efforts of the world's wise, strong, and noble. Their feats and works cannot save them from their destruction. Christ's work has declared him as worthy. So who may boast before God? In saying the word boast, we talk about what we take pride in. For the context of this passage, we cannot deny the sense that the word is being connected in some way with salvation. What can we claim to our name to save us? What is ours that we may offer to God, that we may be spared from judgment? Scripture promises the coming day of judgment where humans will have to stand before God and answer for their works and boasts. 
the claims of earthly wisdom, the acts of worldly might, and the respect of fleshy nobility will melt away like candle wax in the burning and holy glory of the Lord. He has humiliated humanity, what we have declared as weak and lowly and foolish has been revealed as true wisdom and power and status. The greatest of our works cannot save us from death. By our own accolades, we cannot enter the eternal presence of God. Ponder with me. Do you think you bring something to the table for your salvation? Do you think you bring something to the table for your salvation? Our theology informs us that such is not the case. But what does your life say? What are you quietly offering to God that you believe is worth the debt of rebellion against your creator? What sin are you comfortable with? And what do you use to excuse it? I work really hard, God. I'm pretty good, Lord. You won't mind. I have a lot going on, Lord. What are we bringing to the table in hopes that God will excuse our sin? Again, church, the truth is that we cannot offer God anything, anything from our own works or power to satisfy the debt of sin. Christ speaks of the great difficulty those who love their wealth will face in entering the kingdom of heaven. In fact, he essentially says they will not enter the kingdom of heaven. What comes to mind when we think of this is wealth is their boast. But I believe there's something deeper behind their wealth, their love of money. It's that the boast is ultimately found in the individual. I am wise. I am strong. I am a good citizen. I am a hard worker. I am gifted. I am entitled. The central theme of this error is me. And that is exactly why God must bring me low. That's why he must bring us low. For to think we possess strength the Lord cannot match. Know something the Lord is still to learn. Own what God cannot grasp. Or to have glory that the Lord is lacking. That is foolishness. In describing the wise and foolish, weak and strong, lowly and noble, Paul has made it clear that before the Lord both are unable to boast in any of their own accomplishments. 
So why boast in our accomplishments, our accolades, our status? I wonder if the book of Ecclesiastes came to Paul's mind as he wrote the folly of wisdom, might, riches, power, is that none of them can deliver us from death. Meanwhile, the suffering, the sorrow, the punishment, and the death of Christ accomplished deliverance from death. Deliverance from death for his people. Christ's work did what no other work has done or will do. And this is the basis for the humiliation of a rebellious and arrogant humanity. Our works have not, Christ's have. So what do you boast in? Search your heart, church. Where do you place your value and pride? Where do you grow cold and bitter if questioned? What good will it do if you cling to it? Either we are numbered amongst the ragtag lowly alongside our Savior where God receives the glory or we are numbered amongst the paradoxical, the wise who are truly fools, the strong who are actually weak and the noble who are actually lowly. Before God, all will stand without a boast in themselves. The Lord's people acknowledge this, while those with hardened hearts refuse it. Church, we must boast in Christ, our salvation, for the humiliation of our works has revealed there is no way to be saved by our own doing. Paul makes one more point in our text, shifting our attention now to Christ. Let's read verses 30 through 31. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness in sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Because of the same God who chose the foolish, weak, and lowly, the same God in whose presence no one may boast of their own works, the Christian is in Christ. The God who called and chose us has placed us in Christ. We've already considered the cross and work accomplished by Christ. We now must see what the work has done. In his total work, Christ became our wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. It's in who Christ has become to us that we find our final point, Christ, our salvation and boast. Christ, our salvation and boast. Wisdom. Righteousness, sanctification, redemption. These are theological words. And they ask us to turn our attention toward salvation. Christ became our wisdom from God. 
This is the counter to earthly wisdom. This wisdom is a fear of the Lord, a knowledge of who God is, the perfect creator, and who we are, the rebellious creatures. It leads us to crying out to the Lord for forgiveness and mercy. Christ became our righteousness, our status before the Father. Another way we might say that is that Christ is our justification, or that by Christ we are justified, cleared of our sin and wrongdoing, declared innocent. In Christ, the Christian has right standing before the Lord. Christ became our sanctification. He is what or who makes us holy. He is the image we are now made into. And he is our cleansing from the filth of sin and rebellion. He's our entrance into the presence of God. Christ became our redemption. He is what brings us out of the consequence for sin, out of death. And he is the offering, the very payment that purchased us. He is our deliverance from darkness into light. Christ isn't just who gives us the ability to be saved. He is who saves us. And because of all of these things, we might stand in the presence of God for eternity. Christ's work has done what ours never could, can, or will do. Save us. And it is for this reason that we now must boast in Christ, in Christ alone. Christ is our wisdom, strength, and status. And his wisdom, strength, and status are perfect. As we've seen, Paul references Jeremiah 9 to conclude his argument. In actuality, we see that Paul's entire argument is borrowed from Jeremiah 9. For the people of Israel, as they faced exile to Babylon, they were to boast in the goodness of God, trusting that he would deliver them in the midst of their hardship. Now we boast in Christ, knowing he has delivered us. Our salvation is complete in Christ. God chooses the humbled, the foolish and weak and lowly because when he delivers them, when they become wise and righteous and sanctified and redeemed in Christ, they will not hesitate to boast in the Lord. The humble understands that we didn't bring anything to the table that what has been produced in them is sourced in God, not ourselves. Church, there are movements today that view Christ as only a part of the Christian faith, a part of salvation. A person adhering to this conviction would tell you they believe in Jesus. They would tell you that Jesus is the Son of God and that he died for their sins. But if you were to ask them how someone can be good, 
how someone can be declared as righteous. They would not source a person's goodness or righteousness in Christ. But in their own works. They might say that they're saved because they're a good person and they do the right thing. Yeah, I believe in the gospel. I do my best to be a good person. They might list off their works. What they've done, what they've accomplished, how spiritual they are, how gifted they are. Corinth soon will do this. But at the end of the day, this is not a saving faith. It's a salvation reliant on ourselves. They've missed obedience as a response to the complete saving work of Christ. Church, for ourselves, we must consider ourselves as lowly. We cannot believe that God needs us. God doesn't save us because we are just so likable, so lovable, so spectacular or special. God chooses us out of his grace and mercy, not necessity. And God's use of the weak, those who have nothing to boast in, is evidence of this. For when God triumphs, and when he uses us, our response is not to boast in ourselves, but to give him the glory and praise. Church, for your heavenly wisdom, the Lord gets the credit and praise. For your new heart in conversion, church, God gets the credit and praise. For your continual reforming into the image of Christ, God gets the credit and the praise. Church, for our might to endure suffering and trial, God gets the credit and praise. So when we sing, sing accordingly. God deserves the credit and praise. Worship. Don't be absent in the gathering. Not, not sitting here. Please gather, but more so absent in heart. When you read the word of God, don't do it to check a box. But because you desire to know the God who has saved you. When you correct a brother or sister, when you are corrected, do so humbly. Our arrogance often gives evidence when we're bitter and our arrogance offers a need to repent 
in all these things, church, in our life, who are you giving credit to? Who are you boasting in? We must boast in Christ, our salvation. He is our only hope. To boast in anything else is death. To boast in Christ is life eternal. Will you pray with me? Lord, we gather called. We consider who we are in you, Lord. We see your strength, your wisdom, your power, your status. And in our lives, Lord, we pray that we not take credit for it. Christ, you have applied your work to our life. your goodness, your mercy and grace, your suffering and death. What we once considered foolishness and weakness and lowliness is our salvation. Forgive us for our arrogance. Lord, I pray that in all that we do, that our boasts are not founded in our works, our actions, our strength or wisdom or status, but in Christ's. If we are arrogant, Lord, humiliate us. Bring us low that we may see our desperation. And Lord, that we may then cry out to you, our Savior and our King. In the name of Christ we pray.